Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Making the Best of a Bad Situation. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 15th, 2011. In 1 Peter 2.18, we read the shocking words, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. 1 Peter 2.18 is where the lectionary reading for this week should start, with the first sentence of what is obviously a new paragraph. But it doesn't. Instead, the lectionary leapfrogs the submission of slaves in 1 Peter 2.18 and begins with the imitation of Christ in 2.19. How convenient. If we're honest, I suspect that we're glad for this avoidance strategy. Isn't submission to slavery an example of complicity with evil? Aren't Christians called to subvert injustice rather than to submit to it? One way to deal with 1 Peter 2.18 is to follow the example of Thomas Jefferson. In other words, whenever you encounter a passage that offends your own modern myths or is hard to understand, then take your scissors and cut it out. Ignore it or give the writer poor marks for bad theology, stupidity, or gullibility. But the Jeffersonian strategy takes the easy way out. And worse, with Jefferson's strategy, you end up with a Bible that's created in your own image and that reinforces rather than challenges your own cultural narratives. We're much better off to follow a rule in golf when it comes to 1 Peter 2.18. Play it where it lies. Sprinkled throughout 1 Peter are important clues about that community's unique time, place, and circumstances. The author writes from Rome, but he doesn't use the word Rome. Rather, in 1 Peter 5.13, he uses the politically provocative code word, Babylon. It's hard to think of a more derogatory epithet than the ancient empire which conquered and subjugated the Jews way back in 586 B.C. Similarly, John disparages Rome in Revelation chapter 17 as the great Babylon, the mother of whores and of the abominations of the earth, who is drunk with the blood of the saints. The recipients of 1 Peter lived a thousand miles east of Rome, in what is now north-central Turkey. Like the author, they had broken with the social fabric of their community, Three times Peter refers to the believers there as strangers and aliens to Rome's paganism. They belonged to their own peculiar people and nation. They didn't conform to the social conventions of the day. This social marginalization, observes the author, earned them abuse, scorn, slander, and malicious gossip from pagan critics. And in chapter 4, even the name Christian was offensive to their detractors. 
For about a hundred years after Jesus, Christians remained invisible to the greater Roman Empire. But across the decades, they earned a reputation as an antisocial community that lived on the fringes of society. They were considered fanatical, seditious, obstinate, and defiant. The historian Tacitus, who died in the year 117, called them haters of mankind. The Octavius of Minucius Felix, around the year 200, describes how Christians scorned long-held Roman traditions, banquets, displays, and exhibitions. They undermined social cohesion with their indifference to civic affairs. They refused military service and met for clandestine rites rumored to include cannibalism, ritual murder, and incest. The Christians complained one critic don't understand their civic duty. Rome responded to Christian sedition and separatism with state persecution, sometimes sporadic and at other times by official policy. The first few sentences of the epistle describe how the believers suffered grief in all kinds of trials, 1-6. They shouldn't be surprised at the fiery trials, he says, as if their persecutions were strange or unexpected, 4-12. Indeed, he reminded them, you know that your brothers throughout the whole world are undergoing the same kind of suffering, 5-9. It's no wonder that these believers who suffered social marginalization and political persecution felt like the end of all things is at hand. For some of them, that was literally true. The writer thus recommends a strategy of survival. Slaves, submit to your masters. Wives, submit to your husbands. Young men, submit to older men. There's enough trouble in the world without looking for more. To make the best of a bad situation, sometimes compromise is necessary and wise. According to 1 Peter, an exemplary life was the best response to charges of civic indifference and political sedition. In his treatise against Celsus, Origen described how Christians best serve society and the king in their own unique, peculiar way. Listen to the words of Origen. And as we, by our prayers, vanquish all the demons that stir up war and lead to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace, we in this service are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight for them. And we do take part in public affairs, when along with righteous prayers, we practice self-denying disciplines and meditations, which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led astray by them. And none fight better for the king in his role of preserving justice than we do. We do not indeed fight under him, although he demands it, but we fight on his behalf, forming a special army of piety by offering our prayers to God. 
And finally, in some mysterious way, says Peter, enduring unjust suffering participates in the sufferings of Christ himself. 4.13 And in a wonderful paradox, at the end of history, there will be a great reversal. When according to chapter 3.22, every angel, authority, power, and human institution will in fact be in submission to him. For books this week, we have a review of the book How Huge the Night, Grand Rapids, Kriegel, 2011. The authors are Lydia Munn and Heather Munn. This is a guest review by Lydia Klingforth. Some stories must be told. How Huge the Night, the debut novel of a mother-daughter writing team, Lydia and Heather Munn, is set in Nazi-controlled Vichy, France, at the start of World War II. It highlights the little-known true story of the village of La Chambon. Over the course of the war, this town of 3,000 people saved the lives of 3,000 Jews. The town was later honored by Israel for their efforts. It's amazing history, and the Munns tell it well. The novel weaves together the stories of a pair of Jewish refugee children in a perilous journey across occupied Europe, and of a French boy who was new in the small town. The characters are well drawn, especially the faith and struggles of the French protagonist, 15-year-old Julien Lozier. The novel celebrates both the resistance efforts and the Christian convictions that inspired the town's actions. Many Le Chambon residents were descendants from Protestants who had been severely persecuted by French Catholic kings in the 1600s and 1700s. During World War II, a local pastor reminded the town of their own history as he inspired them to accept and shelter many waves of foreign refugees. In his endorsement of the novel, World War II historian and biographer Lyle Dorset wrote, quote, The Mons have written an engrossing historical novel that's faithful to the actual events of World War II in Western Europe during the tumultuous year 1940. But how huge the night is more than good history. It's particularly refreshing because the reader sees the conflict through the eyes of teenagers who were forced to grapple with their honest questions about the existence and goodness of God. I myself, Lydia Klingforth, have an unusual vantage point on this novel. The authors are my aunt and first cousin. So I got to read a draft copy of the book three years ago, and I read it in Kenya, where I live with my family. How Huge the Night was the only book I read all that year since I was busy caring for my newborn son. But I stayed up late into the nights to read while breastfeeding the baby. It was January 2008 then, and Kenya was descending into tribal violence after the disputed presidential election. I could hear gunshots in the distance as I read. So the characters' fears about war were especially tangible. 
Later, we heard firsthand accounts from believers in our own city who risked their own safety to protect the lives and property of friends from the opposite tribal groups. Like the residents of Le Chambon in France back in World War II, they followed the authority of Jesus, not the leaders of their nation or tribe. We live in a violent world, and we all need to read and retell hero stories so that we also have the courage to stand for peace. How Huge the Night is a wonderful book that recreates just such a story. The title of the book, How Huge the Night, a guest review by Lydia Klingforth. For film this week, I review The Kids Are Alright from the year 2010. Some viewers will be put off by a story about a lesbian couple with two teenage children. I thought the film had bigger problems for the first half or so, like shallow dialogue, caricatures, and a plot based upon all things politically correct. But bit by bit, the story captured me, as I began to realize that this family might be non-traditional, but it had to struggle with issues that are not gay issues, but rather deeply human ones that are common to all of us. The couple, Jules and Nick, love each other very much, but have very different personalities. The former a touchy-feely flower child, and the latter a common-sense doctor. Learning to communicate with honesty and love is difficult. They have two typically snarky teenagers, Joni and her brother Laser, and wonder how best to deal with their growing independence. Joni is heading off to college and Laser insists upon meeting his biological father, Paul. The film ends with some powerful scenes of love, bittersweet loss, and forgiveness. The film was nominated for four Academy Awards. The Kids Are Alright, from the year 2010. And for poetry this week, we posted a poem by Denise Levertoff, who lived from 1923 to 1997. It's called Icon, the Harrowing of Hell. Down through the tomb's inward arch, he has shouldered out into limbo to gather them, dazed from a dreamless slumber, the merciful dead, the prophets, the innocents just his own age, and those outnumbered others waiting here unaware. <clears throat> In an endless void he is ending now, stooping to tug at their hands, to pull them from their sarcophagi, dazzled, almost unwilling. Didmus, neighboring death, Golgotha dust still streaked on the dried sweat of his body no one had washed and anointed is here. For sequence is not known in limbo. The promise given from cross to cross at noon arches beyond sunset and dawn. All these he will swiftly lead to the paradise road. They are safe.
That done, there must take place that struggle no human presumes to picture, living, dying, descending to rescue the just from shadow, were lesser travails than this. To break through earth and stone of the faithless world, back to the cold sepulchral, tear-stained, stifling shroud, to break from them back into breath and heartbeat, and walk the world again, closed into days and weeks again, wounds of his anguish open, in spirit streaming through every cell of flesh, so that if mortal sight could bear to perceive it, it would be seen his mortal flesh was lit from within, now an aching for home. He must return, first in divine patience, and no hunger again, and give to humble friends the joy of giving him food, fish, and honeycomb. The Harrowing of Hell, Icon, by Denise Levertoff. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May 15th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.